Turn with me, if you will, this evening to Psalm 138. Psalm 138. You notice when you find the psalm there, the heading, it tells us that it is a psalm of David. The superscriptions of the psalms are inspired as well. And they do give us direction, although they don't exactly pinpoint for us in every case at what point in David's life this psalm was written. But uh, sometimes we can surmise. We don't know when this particular psalm was written, but we do know it was during a time when David was surrounded by his enemies. There were two times in his life when that was the case, when he was called to court to serve uh, at... uh, Saul's bidding, and then, of course, Saul's jealousy compelled David to flee for his life, and he remained several years in exile. And then there was a time after Saul's death when he came to the throne, and when David was anointed king, and he ruled his, uh, for several years in peace and blessing. It was the golden age of uh, Israel's time. And then after his sin with Bathsheba, And in the latter part of his life, of course, his son Solomon decided to seize the kingdom from him. And David was once again for a period of time in exile. So uh, either one of those times it could be, and because his thoughts are toward the temple, some have said it is possible that this psalm was written during the time of Absalom's rebellion. With that in mind, let's read the psalm together. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. In the day when I cried, thou answeredest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord be high, yet he hath respect unto the lowly, or the humble, the penitent, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me, thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand, always the sign of God's power and blessing and protection, and thy right hand shall save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me, Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. When King Hezekiah was surrounded by his enemies in a time of heartbreaking trouble, he turned to this psalm and found encouragement. How many of God's people have turned to this psalm for just that? He recognized its inspiration and he added added it to the hymn book. And here we find what to do when things go wrong. If you don't need that right now, you might want to put this, uh, catalog it because things will go wrong at some time and you will need directions of what to do in that time when things go wrong. All of us face problems, heartaches, disappointments. There are none of God's people, none who walk with the Lord, no matter how close or exempt from these heartaches and problems and distresses in life. There's no status, there's no state of grace, there's no sanctification place that you can arrive where uh, troubles and heartaches and problems do not find you. Uh, Sometimes Satan brings them, and sometimes the Lord allows them for our perfection and for our sanctification. None of us, please remember, please note, that no one, 
no matter how gracious, no matter how Christ-like they are, no one is exempt from the school of adversity. From the most mature Christians down to the frail and the feeble in faith, we all experience life when things go wrong, when things don't turn out as we've planned. And the journey of life runs across deserts of grief and distress, down valleys of sorrow and pain and persecution, across the wide plains of joy and pleasure, and over mountains of accomplishment and success. It is a winding road that leads us to heaven, but this we know Through much tribulation will we gain heaven's entrance. I'm glad that the Holy Spirit records for us, in the Word of God, the experiences of other saints. I love biographies. When I'm able to read any outside of my study, which is rare, I always turn to biographies, all kinds of biographies, people from all walks of life, not just Christian biographies, although that's my primary reading. My very favorite is the biographies of missionaries, and we have quite a collection of them and have uh, resort to them time and time again. But I love to hear about people's lives, what they did, what they accomplished, their problems. And the Bible has the greatest collection of biographies, biographical sketches, and because these were real people who knew the Lord and the Holy Spirit has decided what of their lives to include. I've often marveled at a biographer's task Some people write biographies with scant information. Some people, uh, in the past, it was often the uh, custom for people to burn all their correspondence and all the paper trail when they died. And so if that was the person's lot in life, before there were emails and all that kind of thing, people carried on vast uh, correspondence. That was in replace of phone calls and everything else. And so their lives were primarily written. There was a written record, and you could pretty much piece together a person's life, whether they actually kept a diary or not, just from their letters, which were often long. Our founding fathers were all letter writers, and we have, uh, thankfully, not everyone burned their letters. We have the correspondence between, uh, for example, uh, John and Abigail Adams, some of the first presidents and their wives, and between them and their cabinet members and so forth. And this gives a biographer a great insight into a person's life to be able to read what they thought and felt at the time the event was going on. And so, uh, but the biographer that doesn't have much of a paper trail is very hard. They have to kind of surmise and guess and that kind of thing. And so... Uh, I wonder what future biographers will have of us because we don't have much of that left unless you have copies of those emails and so forth, and so I don't know. Some people kept date books, and you may have a little pocket date book. Again, I guess that's a thing of the past now, but I've kept them all these years. And while I've not always kept a diary, there's a record of my life in these little bitty tiny date books that I keep in my my pocket here, and you can pretty much... Uh, see what went on and, and who did what and when and who was baptized and who was saved. And those just jottings and notes uh, of those kinds of things. But the Holy Spirit chose, uh, I meant to say that a biographer has to, to uh, wade through a lot of stuff to find out what do I include and what do I leave out. It's almost as important what to leave out as it is what to include. But when you read of the biographical sketches of the people in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit has recorded what he wants us to know, what the Lord wants us to know. And so that's very timely, and it's a very teaching to us. I'm glad the Holy Spirit records for us those, these experiences of other saints along their journey to heaven. 
And from this we can learn how to trust when things go wrong. And so I want us to see here, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, that when things went wrong in David's life, the first thing he did is he worshipped. Worship is always appropriate. It is the very lifeblood and the breath and the living of a, a believer's life. Look what he says there. I will praise thee with my whole heart. In deep trouble, not knowing which way to turn, the props knocked out from under us. Here David in his life is hanging on by a thread, so to speak. Uh, no idea where his next meal is coming from. David praises God. He knows this. He might not know how the circumstance is going to work out and whether, if, if it is during the time of the rebellion of Absalom, how that will pan out. Can you imagine the, the turmoil there? He desperately loves his son, as only a father can. And yet the son is acting totally uh, selfish and sinful and outside the will of God. And so that's always a great burden to a parent's heart. And uh, David doesn't know how it's going to turn out. His love for Absalom at the same time, his distress over him was crushing him. Usually when our world caves in, that's when we stop praising God. It's almost uh, for an immature believer and sometimes for a mature believer. Well, if that's how the Lord's going to allow this to happen in my life, I'll just... I'll just stop praising him. I'll stop going to church. I'll just, I'll just check out. Oh, what a, what a silly thing. What a horrible, what a sinful thing to do. We pray to God. We petition him. We plead for help or, or deliverance, but praise him. Uh, that hardly seems to be uh, what is appropriate to, in our human thinking when the bottom falls out. There are those foolish people who, when things go wrong, forsake God or accuse him. They are the loser. Others with great determination hold on to their faith, but praise him? Yes, that's exactly what David did. David knew God well enough to expect a miracle. Man's extremity, someone has said, is God's opportunity. And in fact, how would God show himself strong on our behalf without importune situations in our lives? Some have are bothered by the praise in the latter part of verse 1. Go back there with me. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. Uh, some are bothered by that word gods. And notice, however, it is a little g. And the word in the Hebrew is Elohim. And in the context, it means rulers, other rulers, other peoples of authority. People you know, about maybe at court. Uh, the rulers of other countries who may have been taking note of the trouble that David was having and the embarrassing trouble on top of that, that is his son taking his kingdom from him. David had always shown fearless testimony before other rulers. Whatever you could say about David, he was fearless in his rule. He was fearless as a, in his uh, uh, being a military man. It goes all the way back to before King Saul and before the enemy of giant uh, uh, King Goliath. This young, ruddy, teenage boy uh, came before him uh, and, uh, with, with uh, courage and tenacity. But here David testifies, I will worship toward thy holy temple. Now, that's curious, isn't it? Because you know uh, that David did not build the temple. The temple was not yet standing. In David's day, the temple had not yet been erected. And so, remember, it was Solomon, David's son, that will build God's glorious temple. But the building of the temple was so much a part of David's desire that in his mind it was already built. While they had the tabernacle and it was set up, 
David desired to build a house for the Lord. Though the site of the temple had not yet been chosen during the time of Absalom's rebellion, David had begun to gather all the materials that would be used in the construction of the, of the temple, that enormous, vast amount of treasure that would be needed to build it. And so from other countries, he gathered cedar, and he gathered the, the equipment and the, the gold and the silver, and all was garnered to, to build the temple, and that he would leave. And Solomon had it easy. All he had to do was construct the temple where the plans were already handed down from heaven, all the money was there. It's not hard to build a building if you've got money in, in hand. <laughs> and so Solomon had the easy job. God gave the plan, and David collected the materials. And so, uh, but by faith, David looked toward the temple. Just as we look toward heaven, we've not been there, we've not seen it, and yet it is just as real as if we were standing there tonight. Our hearts are toward there. And so by faith, David looked toward the finished temple. I believe he already had in hand the heavenly blueprints for it, and he yearned to see it built. But David knew the Lord intimately, and, and though he hoped for an earthly building to represent the work of the worship of God, David knew that no earthly spot, no earthly man-made building could contain the Lord. He knew that often, because of the proneness of the heart of man to wonder, the tendency of humans toward idolatry, we're just prone in that way, that a place can often be a hindrance in focusing our attention on spiritual realities. David worshipped God in that dwelling, uh, knew that God could not, he worshipped a God who dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And David, by faith, worshipped God in the heavenly temple. Just as when we take our prayers before the Lord, we enter to the very holy of holies. Uh, the, the, the middle, the veil has been torn in two and the way is open. And so when we pray tonight and we go to prayer, we'll be going right into the very presence of the Lord and our hearts and our minds are in the heavenlies. The thought of a literal temple, though, made him glad. It was a place where the others from other countries could come and marvel that the, the God of the Hebrews had such a place. In time of trouble, David learned first and foremost to worship God. And so we'll just say here tonight that the temple represents worship. And the secret place is the place wherever you worship the Lord. It could be in a crowded airport. It could be with a crowd of people around you or in that special place that you may go to and where you pour out your burdens before the Lord. He praises the Lord for his loving kindness. Now please note that, in the, that the loving kindness is the Old Testament word for grace. You do not often see that word there, but you do see the word loving kindness, and you English students will know that that's a compound word, loving kindness. It's often used in the Psalms, and it's a synonym for grace. That turns our hearts immediately to the Lord Jesus Christ, because when we think of grace, we think of our Savior, the mercy and the grace of our Lord and Savior. John wrote in the first chapter of his gospel, verse 17, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So the law was given, handed down. Moses was its mediator. The sights and the sounds, the fearfulness that announced its coming on Mount Sinai were terrifying. The thunder, the lightning, the fire. It had to be delivered through a mediator. So weighty was the law. So powerful was the law that it had to be handed down. 
And it had to have a mediator. But also grace and truth came. The law was given. Grace and truth came. How did it come? In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It came clothed. Grace came clothed in grace. It came clothed in flesh, in blood, as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. How different was the coming of grace and the giving of the law? It came as one who was holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. Grace came to, to lift up, uh, we pour the erring one and to lift up the fallen as we sing. Grace to forgive the ones who nailed him to the tree. David, in his time of trouble, when his world was crumbling, when he was embarrassed before the gods, worshipped before them. When he was embarrassed before other rulers, can you imagine the talking? Those who said, poor David, look at him, his household is in a mess. His son is taking the kingdom from him. When everything was going wrong, he said, I will praise thy name for thy loving kindness and truth. You see, truth is the only thing that will help us through these dark days. People's ideas, people's philosophies, and your feelings, all that matters not at all. We need to have a certain truth. In times like these, you need a Bible, the song says. You, you need the, the Savior. You need verities, not opinions. This is the days of polls. And every day we hear about this poll and that poll. I've often wondered, how many of you have ever been called one of these political polls? Anybody here? You see, well, one, okay. And, well, that's good. I've just never met anybody who's ever got a call and said, you know, it could be that I hang up on them before they get to that point. I don't know. Or say, I'm sorry, I'm not interested. But uh, we hear of polls every day. Oh, my goodness. I was thinking the other day. I don't know how they make their money, but that ought to be the business to be in polling, you know, because they're just handing down all this information, and it changes every day. Who was in the lead yesterday is not in the lead today. This many points, that many points, and so forth. But polls are just that. They're what... On any given moment of time, some people were asked and they came up with that data. But what was the basis of David's praise and worship? Look in the latter part of verse 2 and mark it. Thou hast magnified thy word, unbelievably, above all thy name. Now that's a very key verse in the inspiration of the Scriptures and the authority of the Scriptures. God, who we would not know of except through figures and through the, the amazing creation, but yet not enough to know him savingly. We, we know there's a God through creation. We can see his wonders. You can look in a microscope and can be convinced of a creator. And yet, that's not enough to get you to heaven. That's not enough to know his ways. Oh, we can see the lightning flash and volcanoes and earthquakes, but we really can't make much sense of all of that except there's got to be a God creator behind it. And so he so graciously gave us literal writings about him so we could know what he hates and what he loves. The law was given. And then he said, you know what? They need to know me intimately. And so God the Son said, I will go and take on flesh and show them what the word, what the law looks like, lived out to perfection. See how gracious our God is. Oh, he was worthy just to leave it at creation. Man fail, and he could say, good enough for you. There is a God in heaven, you have fallen, and I'll do away with all of you. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But he gave us his word. And I want you to know that word is magnified, made great, enlarged above his own name. In the Old Testament, God's word and his name were synonymous. 
They were inseparable. He continually revealed himself by his name. Elohim was his name as creator and sustainer of the universe. The omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God is Elohim. The God of the galaxies. The maker of molecules. The one who made the cherubim and the seraphim. The angel and the archangel. God has exalted his word above that name. Then we think of his name Adonai. That was the name as sovereign Lord, as supreme ruler. The one whose throne is above the stars. Go as far as you can go. Go as far as the most powerful microscope or can take you, or astronomer's eye. The word is escaping me. The vehicle you use to see the stars. The most powerful one that they have. Go far, far beyond that and you'll find the throne of God. The one who has created all things must be obeyed. You see, he has exalted his word above that name. Then we think of the name Jehovah, which means the eternal one. The one who reveals himself. Our God reveals himself. The one who enters into covenant relationships with us. Think of it, the creator entering into a covenant with us. You and I sign contracts with one another, one human to another, knowing that that frail human can break it and probably will. Think of any time you buy anything, you sign page after page and initial and initial and sign and sign and sign and sign and sign. And that's a contract. And we're very wary of it. But think of God stooping down to make a covenant with us. Why would he do such a thing? As fickle and frail as we are. You know why? Because the covenant, the contract is all based on him. He makes it and performs it and then brings it to pass. All out of His sovereign grace. His word is beyond. His word is His bond. He he exalts His word above that name. The covenant making name. When you sign your name to something. I had to sign my name to a document today. Of some of our uh, things that we have here in the radio and television. The lawyer sent me a, a page. And every time I sign my name on something like that. I always think. I wonder where this will lead. You know I wonder why. And I looked at my signature there. Uh, And I I thought, well, you know, I'm told to do this. But think of God, as it were, signing his name to a covenant saying, I will perform it on your behalf. He is Jehovah Jireh, the the one who provides, who who takes care of all of our wants, who provided himself to be the lamb uh, for the burnt offering. He's exalted his word above that name. Jehovah Shalom. The Lord our peace. He is Jehovah Rafika, the, the Lord who heals. The Lord our righteousness. The Lord is there. The Lord our banner. The Lord who sanctifies. On and on and on the names of God. We could go on, but our God has a great name, doesn't he? He jealously guards that name. In fact, he says, let no one take my name in vain. Don't ever say God's name in a half-hearted, useless way. I will not hold that one guiltless who takes my name in vain. Every day, I think the thing that grieves me the most is the, the flitting ways I hear people using God's name. We hear it all around us in the media and all. They don't believe in Him, but they use His name at will. God will not hold people guiltless who take His name in vain. He does not allow human beings to do that. He has declared that no one will be guiltless who lightly speaks His name. Without the scriptures, he is exalted and extolled that name. Our Lord Jesus add a new name to God. 
He taught us to call him something that no Old Testament believer would ever have dreamed of calling him. Do you know what that name is? It's the most tender of them all. And as our elder brother and as our pattern, he gave us the right and purchased the right for us to use this name. It is the word Abba, Papa, Father, Daddy. Oh, think of it. Our relationship with the Creator, with Jehovah, with the Sustainer of all things is a Father. And we come to Him tonight at this prayer meeting as children. It's my children came to me. Daddy, can I go here? Do I need this? I have to have this sign for school. I need money for a field trip. On and on and on they came to me. And we met their needs as best we can. You earthly fathers do that. You earthly parents. Think of that intimate, precious relationship of a father and a child. Surely that's greater, the greatest of all of his names. That name that draws us to himself in such a precious way. Jehovah, our Father. Yet, I want you to know that God exalts His Word above that name. That is what God thinks of His Word. And you, should, you dare not think anything less. When you hold the Scripture, when you read it, always remind yourself, this is the very Word of God. It's the part of God I can touch. It's God revealed to me. It's all that God ever wanted a human to know is revealed in that book you have there. It is the secret things of God. It is the riches of His grace. All those things are revealed to us. It is the charter of our covenant. All of it's found here for us. How dare men and women to doubt His Word and to deny it? But they do. They lightly set that Word aside as if it was the result of man's imagination. A day of accounting is coming, and do you know what? The books will be opened. These 66 books will be opened along with the Lamb's book of life and the record of, of all men's deeds, and by these things God will judge. His word is forever settled in heaven. It's not up for debate. It's not up for, for voting. It's already been settled and exalted above his own name. And that's what David was taking into account when he said, I will worship him. Not only when things went wrong for David did he go to the word. And let me just tell you, there's no worship apart from his word. A wordless worship, what is that? You don't know what to worship if you don't have His Word. We have to be taught, and that's doctrine. And our worship flows from our doctrine. So there's no such thing as a a worship without God's Word. What we sing is His Word, is based on His Word. What we preach is based on His Word. What we pray, we're just praying the things He's told us to pray and and using the, 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 the promises that He told us to claim. Oh, beware of a worship that doesn't need the Word of God. Beware of preaching that doesn't use His Word. Beware of songs that don't have His Word as the basis. We must have, it must be for it to be to worship in spirit and in truth. It must be Word-based. Not experience-based. Not feeling-based. Not ethereal-based. Not atmosphere-based. What saith the Lord? That's what David was pleading. That's what David was declaring. Not only when things went wrong did David worship, but secondly, he prayed. And I want you to know that the two are so go so hand in hand that they're inseparable. And verses three through six, he tells us exactly what he cried, and he he said he sang. He uh, though the Lord be high, in verse six, he hath respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar. In the day when I cried, thou answeredest me and strengthened me with strength. Where? In my soul, 
the inner man, the real you. And that's how God answered David's prayer. We often want other kinds of answers than that, but God gave David the strength to endure the turmoil if it was the running from Absalom, if it was the horrible emotional crush of a rebellious son tearing the kingdom apart. It was a civil war led by a son against a father. Nothing could be worse than that. But David said, I will pray. And God gave him the strength to endure that horrible darkness in his life. Now, we would rather the problem to go away. We think prayer is answered. Is Lord Absalom's trying to take the kingdom, set him straight, send him home, make him repentant, and we prescribe to God exactly how he could answer that prayer. But you know what God did? He gave David strength to endure Absalom's rebellion. Look there again. He said, Thou givest me strength. Verse 3, In the day when I cried, you did answer me. But the way God answered David was to give him the strength. This sounds like a prayer in the New Testament, doesn't it? When Paul asked for three different times for the Lord to remove the thorn in his, uh, in his flesh, and he said, I, my grace will be... I'll give you the, the superabundant ability and wherewithal to go through this horrible situation. Not going to take the situation away, Paul. David, Absalom's not going to be... In fact, Absalom's going to die a very horrible death, isn't he? It's going to be a, a very scandalous and heart-rending thing. God did not stop Absalom's rebellion until Absalom ended his own life. And again, that was a heartache and a heart-rending thing to the king, but also a very abominable thing before the nations. Again, that caused the enemies of God to blaspheme. We would think that if God, if this indeed is the the time that, that, that of David's life, the rebellion of Absalom, and I'm preaching as if it is, we would think the way to answer that is to Make Absalom come to his senses, get himself straightened out, straighten out his life, get right with the Lord, repent and come ask his daddy's forgiveness and all be restored and there'll be a big parade and celebration. Everyone's saying, oh, God good. Absalom got right. He came home. He's, he's been put in his place and now David's been rightly restored to his throne. That's not how that story ends. He did not remove the problem immediately. The problem will be removed in God's time. Uh, but instead, he strengthened David in his soul. Do you know the greatest request that you can pray is the, the ability to endure what God's will is for your life. He gives you strength. This is not uh, just physical strength, although it includes that. It's strength where? In the soul. This is spiritual fortitude to live like a Christian in horrible situations. God allows things to happen for this very reason, to strengthen the soul. There's an outer man and there's an inner man. What does the Bible say? The outer man is wasting away. It's getting old. It's, it's aging and it's going to die. The inner man is quite the opposite. It, it's an opposite direction. The inner man is being sanctified and will one day be glorified. The inner man is being, should be strengthened day by day transformed by the renewing of your, your mind, which is by the Word of God. And he wants to do something in our souls which will make us stronger believers than we were before. And sadly, we don't put a high premium on that. We put a higher premium on a problem-free life, a luxurious, easy life, a, a, what we call a blessed life. But I would tell you the blessing of the Lord is strength to go through bad things, to endure hard circumstances as a, a righteous 
and a rejoicing, overcoming believer. Often God answers our prayers by giving us what we need in order to live with the problem. Paul found that out. Job found that out. God says, my grace is sufficient. It is enough. We think we need something else, like the problem to be removed, or other resources, or more money in the bank, or whatever you could think up. And, and, and those things, I'm sure, are vital and important. But, but God says, my grace is enough. I'll work everything out out of the resources of my grace. Folks, it's God's grace. His, if His divine enabling is not enough, let me ask you, what would be? What would, how much money would it take to go through a problem if you didn't have God's grace? The rich don't, they, they may have problems to buy the best lawyer or the best medical treatment, but at some point, all that, there's, there's a dead end to all that. Grace is what fortifies the soul in the midst of dark times. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul prayed, and that was God's answer. And then he said, well, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In fact, Christ's power is not seen or experienced until we see how weak we are. It is in our weakness. Lord, I don't know my right hand from my left. I'm weak as water. I'm not sufficient of myself to think anything is of myself. My sufficiency will be of you. If this, if this life is lived, if this ministry is done, if this piece of work is done that you've given me to do, it will have to be because of your grace. And that way, Christ gets all the glory and God's name is magnified. David worshipped. He prayed. It's a very easy outline tonight. And thirdly, David was revived. We see that in verses 7 through 8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, if it is during the rebellion of Absalom, it doesn't get any worse than that, does it? You parents can imagine. Those of you who have a business and it was being taken over by a, a, a competitor and it's just all, everything you could think of is just horrible. David says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. I love that. That's a guarantee, isn't it? In that verse, you see David saying that to, it's almost to an audience, and then he turns it into a prayer. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. He's talking to us, and he's talking to the Lord. Forsake not the works of mine. And then he ends with a request. He starts out with a declaration. He makes a petition. And then he uh, begs the Lord not to forsake the work of his, his, his own hands. Do you see what he's doing there? He's reminding himself of something God has said. And then he prays it. That's what uh, true prayer is. It's taking God at his word and praying it back to him. Lord, he's, sta he's stating a doctrine. Prayer is based on doctrine. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. We could go throughout. Job said that. Paul said that. We could find that. So he states that doctrinal statement. And then he says, Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. That's the basis of that, that doctrine, the mercy of God. And then he turns it into a prayer. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. That's true biblical praying. That's praying that gets an answer. He was revived. He starts out uh, with praise and he ends up with revival. You want revival, you start with praise. Think of it. In the midst of trouble, he had revival. He has nothing to worry about. He, his depression and despair vanish the moment he sees the situation in light of God's omnipotence and his omniscience. That means he knows everything as it really is. We don't really, do we? 
we, don't, we can't get inside of Absalom's mind and heart. We can't understand all the circumstances. We really don't know things as they really are. We just, as we perceive them, as we think them. But when we pray, we're saying, now, Lord, you know all about this. I just know how I feel, how I, what I heard, what I think. And I'm bringing all that to you. And would you straighten it out? Straighten me out. That's what prayer is doing. And straighten them out, Lord, in your own way. First of all, straighten me out. Straighten them out. And then have your perfect will. And that's what David is praying here. Because God knows it as it really is. And can do anything that really needs to be done. God is with David. He's with us. And he will stretch out his hands against David's enemies. No power in the universe can withstand the stretching out of God's hand. This is the ultimate secret of why it seems like God delays in delivering us from what looks like the enemy triumphing over us. It is this. And listen, I want you to miss this. Why is it that sometimes he doesn't immediately solve the problem and take away the burden and supply what we think we need? Verse 8, the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. He's perfecting us. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. Well, this is a glorious teaching for us tonight. God uses adverse circumstances to perfect us. We might not as be, be as concerned about the perfecting as God is, but what he started out to do, he will finish. Jesus Christ said, I've not lost one of them. All of yours I will bring to you one day. And he'll bring us their whole. He'll bring us their perfected to accomplish his wise and wonderful purpose that he has in mind for us. Dr. John Phillips writes, Years ago I met a potter who made his home in Bethlehem. His little place was on a side road off the beaten track where he had found a field of suitable clay. I went in and there he was with a piece of clay in his hands. He was working it over and over, holding it first in his, this hand and then in that as he punched it and pounded it. It was cold, hard, and stiff, and he was making it warm, soft, and malleable. Next, he put that piece of clay on his wheel, drew up his stool, moistened his hands, and went to work. For a while, he exerted pressure on that clay with his hands from the outside, and then that outside pressure made it grow. The clay grew taller and taller as he kept the pressure on. Without that pressure, it would have remained a shapeless lump. But with it, the clay grew. Then he moistened his hands again. And with his thumb, he made a, a hollow in the top of that clay cylinder. As soon as the hollow was deep enough, pressing inward and downward with his fingers until he could get his whole hand down inside the cavity. He was now putting pressure on the inside. That inside pressure gave the clay shape and form and capacity. Without it, it would have remained a cylinder of clay incapable of holding anything. The potter then took his vessel off the wheel and put it in the furnace, a very primitive furnace, fired by pieces of wood. I didn't stay for the whole process, but for an hour after hour, that clay was there in the furnace and the heat. All the time, though, the potter was there feeding the furnace, knowing just how hot to keep it. He never allowed it to get too hot or too cold. At last, it was finished. The potter took out the finished piece and put it on display shelf outside his shop, a tribute to the skillfulness of his hands. All through that process, the potter was perfecting his work. Now it was on display. And that's exactly what David discovered. 
Thou wilt perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endures forever and ever. Forsake not the works of thy hands. Well, we have the Lord's promise, don't we, that he'll do exactly that.